Hi, I'm Frankie Frayne, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made three low-budget feature films of varying success, and I went to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length projects on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the kinds of conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay 40 grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. Welcome back to Discount Film School. Okay, um, this week I've got Julian Higgins, uh, who I went to school with at Emerson College a few years ago. And uh, Julian's one of those guys that normally we keep these down below an hour. And it, that might be tough with a guy who, like, he's, he's the kind of person every few years you hear, like, did you hear about Julian? Uh, like, he fucked a bunch of women at the same time. Or, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you hear about Julian? I heard he, like, beat up Hulk Hogan or something like that. Um, uh, Julian's been very busy f- from the time I knew him all the way up until uh, recently. Um, had a lot of success with comedy throughout uh, his career at Emerson and then went on to uh, to make really two award-winning movies, major award-winning movies, including a Student Academy Award, and then went on to, to in my opinion, uh, peaked really in life uh, by directing Peter Lorre in an episode of House. So this guy is just all over the goddamn map. Um, so thanks, Julian. Surely, I mean, he, as much as I would have liked to have directed Peter Lorre. Did I say Peter Lorre? Oh, my but God. He's an, but he's an actor that, like, he's one of the all-time greats. So that would have been great too, but Hugh Laurie is hard to beat as well. So I got all caught. And, uh, I got all caught up in my intro, and I started just like shoving in <laughs> legacy Hollywood people into. You were it. on a roll, and I was hesitant to even correct you <laughs> because like, Peter. I would take Peter Laurie in a second, so, <laughs> and not in that way as an actor and director relationship. So before we started rolling, you said that yeah, the last time we spoke, we were in the middle of of the woods. Do you remember for what role that was? Yes, well, I was playing a very strange two-headed princess, and you, as I recall, were the other head. Yeah, I was sort of almost like a goiter on the other side. Yeah, you were a goiter with a face, basically. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of how I describe you to people. Yeah, so. there's this guy, he's a goiter with a face. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, there, that we, we had sort of, a, I think we met because we had kind of mutual friends. Um, yeah, well... Um, yeah, actually, uh, a number of mutual friends, and that was, I think, the first time we'd ever actually spent any time together. Um, but uh, that was an incredibly memorable experience, not least because of the weather. But that's uh, maybe that's another story. Maybe that's a story for now. Who knows? Yeah, um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I, I actually uh, kept a running document of that entire weekend. And that is the best part of the whole thing, to be honest. You've seen that, I mean, what, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Um, and shared it many a time. Yes, the making of Gizor and Gorm, available on YouTube, is strongly recommended viewing in my household. Yeah, there's not a lot of... I mean, like when, when you're in film school and, and you give 20-year-old kids... Um, and, and 16 millimeter film and a sound package and say, go make it whatever you want. Yeah. You're going to get all types of shit. Like you're going to get, yeah. you're going to get some really sort of artful, pretentious stuff. You're going to get really, really lowbrow stuff. And you might even, if you strike gold, get a, uh, a, 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 a barbarian, barbarian movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were supposed to, uh, yeah, we played a yeah. high priestess, a two headed high priestess, yeah. which was supposed and, to be uh, played by a woman, by the way. Yeah, and of course they couldn't find because finding actors for a you know second year film project is you know so we were all casting each other and uh, I ended of course you know obviously I got the female role 
And um, you were playing the other head sticking yeah. out of my, I guess, where sort of my left breast would be. And uh, we both talked in crazy voices. And um, then they were all dubbed over anyway because the sound didn't work during the whole shoot. So yeah. There was no sound the whole whatsoever. Thing, yeah, the whole thing was just a – it was really a textbook example of everything going wrong. It was like Lost in La Mancha on a two-day scale, you know, and way worse, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um Although they finished it. Uh, la- later on, several months later, I would be in a- another movie of theirs that you had nothing to do with called Brain Eating Aliens, where they, they put us in a, in a really, um, like, actually dangerous situation. Uh, like, we-, we went out into the middle of the woods, in the middle of the snow. Uh, they thought that they were going to be able to get us all to a cabin and keep us warm. Um, but, like, it, t- it ended up that the-, the path from the cars... Or like the road to the cabin was completely snowed in, and there was no hope. And if you were going to shoot a movie, it was going to be extremely dangerous. So everybody walked off except for like me and Kurt, and um, and that's all online too. That is truly lost in La Mancha because that they they never actually developed the film. It was all for naught. The the do- so all 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 you have is the documentary. Yeah, and thank God I did. Um, at the time I used to carry around a camcorder everywhere. Now I just have a phone. Thank God. But um, that's true. You really did film everything. And you know, this is just a good lesson because you know, six years ago I never would have thought I would have made anything of myself standing there in the rain in Western Massachusetts, getting shat on by all the elements, and you know, with Frankie inside my dress. So there you go. <laughs> I like to think that like I'm I'm kind of game for almost anything because I ask as a director I ask people to do all kinds of crazy shit. So I like to kind of pay it forward. But that was one experience <laughs> that by the time to- by the end of what we were doing, I was like I, I really I'm 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 getting uh, uh, totally sick of this. And I since then I, I stayed away. Um, yeah. I want to rewind the clock. Um, to so you 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 were an undergrad with me at Emerson, but were you uh, were you the filmmaking type before that? I mean, were you you know one of these kids with a camera in high school and whatnot? Definitely. Um, <clears throat> I uh, had started from. I mean, my project my trajectory was very organic. It was from being a very young kid, like you know, from however young I was to hold a marker. I was drawing and drawing and drawing, and that was my thing. And then around second grade. I decided that you know acting was going to be my thing, based on my desire to be a pirate, really. Mm. Uh, so I thought maybe that was the closest I would get to being a pirate was being an actor. So from second grade all the way through uh, high school, I was a big theater kid, and you know, um, you know, I liked to I did the school plays and and uh, you know to a year, and. Um, uh, you know, and and I and I was I ended up being the president of the drama club and blah blah blah. But along the way, I started writing stuff as well, and and uh, that was sort of like the the combination of drawing, acting, and writing is what led me to a film in a very very organic way. So you weren't ne- you weren't necessarily a fan of film. You kind of came came to it artistically. I I definitely, as far as making films go, I definitely came to it uh, by through all my other interests. And then as far as being as I was definitely a fan of film though. My my mom actually teaches French film uh and literature at Dartmouth and my dad teaches teaches East Asian history, so he was very he was so I I grew up in a household with a lot of European films coming in from one side and a lot of uh Japanese and Chinese films coming in from the other side. So I was definitely saturated in in a you know world cinema from a very young age, I didn't ever really develop a taste for kind of mainstream American films. Um, so 
I guess my sensibility now is much more of an independent uh, sort of an, an American independent cinema type sensibility because of all of that. But my favorite filmmakers are are you know Kurosawa and David Lean and people and you know people like that. And then the American filmmakers that have absorbed those uh, influences, like P.T. Anderson and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So you came to it from the side. That's kind of interesting in terms of like, like most of us grew up in, on Indiana Jones and Star Wars, and then we learned yeah. that movies don't have to be that. Uh, but mm. you, you, that was how you were introduced. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, whatever people imagine is like this, the sort of upbringing of a film snob. That's exactly what happened to me, <laughs> you know. And like, I, I, I'm very glad that I had all those influences, but it's really true. Like, I saw Citizen Kane before I could even understand what it was about. You know what I mean? Wow. So like, that was kind of my, and that, that's just unfortunately the way it was. I mean, like now, like I recently saw Goonies for the first time. That's awesome. I love that movie, mm-hmm. but I didn't really see that as a kid, you know. So it was completely backwards from. And then there wasn't ever a moment when I saw, you know, I saw a movie like Star Wars or something like that and realized they wanted to be a filmmaker. It yeah. wasn't, that's not, that's not what happened to me at all. It was a very kind of like, it was all, you know, one interest leading to another. And then it eventually led me to film. And that was when I realized that I'd sort of, all my interests were represented in one, uh, field. Right. So, so when do you, so when do you pick up a camera? Uh, I picked up the camera for the first time in between sixth and seventh grade. In the summer of sixth, after sixth grade, my friend and I had written a whole bunch of uh, you know silly scenes and sketches and things, very heavily influenced by Monty Python. <laughs> and uh, you know, we just decided to shoot the scenes with a you know camera that was older than us, and um, you know it was in my friend's basement, and his parents never used. So we we shot all those scenes that summer. And ended up with a sort of a 40-minute Monty Python rip-off kind of stream-of-consciousness comedy movie, which I think stands the test of time quite well. Um, But uh, I'm, you know, I don't think anyone else would agree. But that's kind of when it, you know, so seventh grade is when I really realized that, you know, this is kind of what I wanted to do. And then ever since then, I've been very um, rigorously following that passion. Isn't that interesting? Nobody really that everybody's first film is some flavor of comedy because it often starts off with like, um, wouldn't it be fun to make a movie? Exactly. And I think that that is a really, that's the really pleasurable part about it, which very quickly gets lost the Mm -hmm. bigger the production gets, you know, which is let's get our friends together and do something that we think is fun and not give a shit about the marketplace or, you know, what we think people want or some imagined like strategy about becoming a filmmaker. It's just like, what are we interested in doing? And actually, I think that's um, that's really the thing that I've tried to get back to in the last few years is if I'm going to work on something, it has to be something that gets me excited and hopefully it'll intersect with some, you know, audience somewhere. <laughs> and in the case but, of in the case of Python, I think they're, they're some of those guys who when you're watching their sketches or you're watching their work, you can actually see the fun that they're having. I uh, love that. And yeah. I love that. I love seeing that. Not just in comedy, but I like seeing that in drama. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. Like, I like I like knowing that the actors are just like you know so in it and so excited about it. And uh, you can really, I think, sense the difference when people that are working on a production at any level are mm-hmm. fired up about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I think I think you can tell that the Star Trek films are the funnest 
films to make, you know, like J.J. Mm-hmm. Abrams runs a great production and like everybody's feeling great that they're in it and they love the franchise and they're just geeking out about it. And you can see that on screen. Yeah, I don't I don't feel that at all with um, the you know, some of the other huge <laughs> other huge block. And Goonies is a great example of a movie that movie had to have been so much fun to make, you know. Yeah. I mean, like the Star Wars prequels, everybody looks like they're a little confused. Oh, God. E- even I'm in sure the final th- product. Yeah. And I'm sure they were. I yeah. mean, you know, uh, and interestingly, um, I think that uh, having, you know, I'm trying to think of a movie that, you know, I know was a great production that didn't, you know, sort of come out feeling like that. You yeah. Know? Whereas, you know, you can see a lot of the pain of making a movie in the final product. Yeah. I wonder if there are like, you know, productions that were awesome that came out like shit. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. I mean, I, I, I think that I think that's true in all our I mean, I think that like, you know, uh, one of the big themes that, that kind of keeps coming up with a lot of the people that I speak with is um, the idea of accessibility. Right. Like of like the, the first time you saw a movie that you could see the seams through uh, was when even if you did have an appreciation for higher art or fine art, it, once you see the seams, you go, oh, OK, maybe I can do that, too, then. Um, mm-hmm. And but it's so fascinating that not everyone goes through that. Pro- I mean, like I, I would assume being a lover of movies and knowing I don't really know a lot of people that aren't that enthusiastic about movies, you know, mm-hmm. movies are kind of like the medium that speaks to everybody. It's, you it's know? what you do after the chores are done. Every, and every loves it. Yeah. yeah. Movies and television now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I never used to watch television, but now I do because you know, it's becoming more cinematic, but, um, you know, like I don't think people respond the same way to musical theater or novels or, you know, th- or dramatic theater or opera. Anyway, movies are a thing that everybody, uh, everybody speaks to everybody in some way, and it's interesting how little many people know about the process. You know, yeah. I worked in a video store in Boston, and one day uh, somebody wanted to check out a movie, and of course, being who I am, I noticed that it was a full screen version of yeah, the movie, yeah, and I was like, I was like, so just so you know, we have the widescreen version, and it's like thirty three percent more movie, you know, <laughs> and and. And she was like, oh, I thought they just shot them with two cameras. So basically her perception was they're making – simultaneously they're yep. making two a versions. full screen movie and a widescreen movie. And that kind of blew my mind because I – you know. But I, I, I just think it's amazing that how, how little people know about how movies are made and that's fine. I just – I think if I like something, I want to I find out more about it. Yeah. Yeah. But some people just want to – I mean you know, there's – there's definitely such a thing as like I like driving in a car, but I don't give a fuck how it how it rides, you know. Yeah, um, and I think the people listening to this podcast are probably along our lines where they want to know as much as possible about how movies are made. Yeah, oh, totally. Um, so I think there's for for like really young artists like like you were between sixth and seventh grade. There's a transition period where after the first accomplishment or or even just the first like fun experience you go from you know wouldn't that be fun to <clears throat> i actually want to do this or i, I want to do this semi-permanently or i want to do this again or i want to start ramping up for something bigger I, I you know suddenly have these these aspirations did you uh have like a group of friends that would kind of support you in that or did you start to slowly lose people as you got more serious about it how did all that develop well that was that's really that's a really good question i mean that's a very insightful question I never, I never really had a moment where I adjusted to the idea and, dis- and sort of made a decision. I, I think, and I credit my parents with that uh, significantly because 
they never tried to discourage me from doing anything uh, that I was, you know, creatively inspired by, you know. They never said, well, you know, they never tried to steer me towards a, a real job or something, you know, <laughs> which is, you know, very courageous of them. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, you know, so I, like when I when I made that first movie with my friend, uh, you know, and we played each, we each played like 12 roles in the movie, you know, it was every scene was a two person scene with the two of us. And, um, you know, and then the next thing that I did almost immediately was start to adapt a children's book that I had loved as a kid uh, into a feature. And I made that, I made a, and so I made a feature film with more, you know, maybe 20 of my friends playing different roles uh, by the end of eighth grade, you know, and I had never, I never really, I just sort of just went on to the next thing. So mm-hmm. like I was, pers- I was just sort of pursuing the thread of my, uh, my interest in this in this medium it wasn't it wasn't like i ever really felt like i made a conscious decision of like okay i'm going to pursue this now instead of something else the, you know i made the first thing loved it saw the power of the the medium and just wanted to do it again and yeah. make it bigger and then that just kept going just, just completely organic in that way it just kept feeding on itself yeah and i think i really do think that my development has been um really, really organic. The only decision that I ever really had to make was whether I was going to go to college. And by that time, I, I knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker. I knew I wanted to make be a director. But this, the question for me was, do I want to go to college and study filmmaking? Or do I want to continue to pursue theater mm-hmm. knowing that, and acting, knowing that that's going to really play into my film work? And so I, the only real decision that I had to make was whether to go to Emerson as a theater or a film major. And I decided to go with film, but I, I just kept taking theater classes at Emerson. And um, I took every class that was available. Uh, and then once I'd run out of classes for non-majors, I appealed to the theater department to let me take the regular classes, which they agreed to. So I had taken basically an acting class every semester um, uh, throughout my college experience. Why, so that was, why, why Emerson? Why Boston? You know, and that was that's also weird because I didn't make it. I didn't have to make a decision about college either. I just i I had heard about Emerson. I went to tour. I loved it. It was the only place I applied, and I kind of felt like I was going to get in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot I of just, people, like, a lot of people say that. Yeah, and I think Emerson has a real. I think Emerson is a specific enough college that if you are interested in it, um, you're probably right for it. You know, yeah. like it's, it's not a liberal arts school at all. It's it, all it claims to be. It really is a school where people who kind of know what they want to do mm-hmm. go to do that from day one. Yeah. And they're kind of like, uh, we'll give you a four year degree. Don't worry. Yeah. And basically like the people who didn't really know that and like thought they did, they drop out or transfer or whatever. Yeah. And the people, the people who go there knowing that they want to be film or radio or whatever, they they do that and then they go out into the workforce and do that immediately. You know, it seems like. I didn't realize um, how, how much of a theater uh, concentration you had at Emerson. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I tried to get them to give me a um, at the very least a minor in theater because I had more than enough classes. But the theater department at Emerson is, you know, and I think probably rightly so. They are a very it's a very good theater department. They're very protective of their degrees. Yeah. So they didn't give it to me, but I definitely had enough classes for a minor at least. Um, but the acting classes, I mean, first of all, doing, having experience as an actor is one of, is perhaps, I think it's probably the most important thing to have as a director, I think. Just knowing about acting, 
not necessarily in a academic way, but no, but specifically like knowing what the issues that your actors mm -hmm. are thinking about, just being aware of what an actor has to do on a technical level so that you can be accommodating that as a director. That is an incredibly important aspect of it. And the fact is that directing the directing of actors, in my experience, even out here and even at the highest level, in my opinion, um, is a really, really dying uh, craft. Oh, yeah. It's um, true. I, I hear that, like, some, you know, top guys, people you would be, like, shocked to hear, uh, don't know how to speak to actors. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, my experience is that that's, um, that's true, and it's not just from observing directors. I mean, I, I, you know, it's not that I saw directors who, you know, you know, screwed everything up with actors. But uh, my experience is that actors who I work with a lot, a lot more than directors. Right. Yeah. Of course. Um, you know, that actors are used to having bad directors, and they expect that you're a bad director. And because of that, there is an extra kind of hurdle of earning their trust. You know, if if directors, you know, really knew how to work with actors on a broad in a big way, I think earning the trust of the actor would be easier. Um. But because because actors are now very protective of themselves because they've been screwed over by directors so many times, uh, it's a lot harder to get people to trust you. I think. Yeah, I remember you've always been um, really sensitive to actors as a director. You have always been an actor's director in my eyes since I met you. I remember we did, uh, and I'd love to see it again if you ha if you archived it. It would make me so happy. But we did a a Doritos commercial. Oh yeah, I have that. Oh, oh yeah, thank yeah, yeah. God! I, I I want a copy of it so badly. We, we should we should post that along with this. Okay, uh, I I can you know just send you send it to you. Yeah, that would that'd be really great. Um, you play like basically a like a sort of version of what's that little guy in the Batman movies, the Kingpin or something? The the Penguin. The Penguin. You yeah. play like a version of the Penguin, which is <laughs> I think amazing casting for you. If I do say so myself. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so anyway, continue. I mean, yeah, even just for a thirty-second spot, or it was even quicker than it might have been like fifteen-second spot. You were really uh, uh, totally respectful. That you, like, <laughs> I remember just being like, "Dude, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna laugh and and act like a fucking <laughs> clown." And you you were still like, even even on something that low stakes, you you were uh, you were sensitive about the way you know you always wanted to make sure you were talking to the actors properly. And I was kind of really admired that. Um, and and it's it's clear that it comes from. Uh, an appreciation of stage and also the fact that you've stood in as an actor so many times. When I met you, I really, kind of, I thought you were uh, an actor first and foremost, um, which wasn't well, true at all. Well, yeah. And I, uh, I think the people that I learned the most about directing from were my acting teachers over the years, because in a way, you know, a lot of the things that uh, acting teachers are trying to, a lot of the information they're trying to impart to young actors is frankly what directors have to work on with actors uh, in the real world, quote unquote. Um, I mean, just, you know, I mean, even, you know, it's uh, the thing that I have to deal with the most on, on every shoot is just like reminding people that they don't have to push, you know, like mm -hmm. they don't have to try to show the scene. They don't have to like try to illustrate what's happening. Like there's a lot going on around the actor that's helping tell the story and they don't have to like, they don't have, they can just trust that it's going to be there if it's happening within them. And that's a lot of what acting classes are about, you know, trying to get rid of people's or, or not get rid of them, but replace their ha their their habits with some sort of uh, relaxation and technique and things like that. And I'm just an acting geek. I love acting. I love different styles of acting. I love, uh, you know, different 
methods and different uh, approaches. And I love I love the challenge of having a group of actors that are all different ways of working and trying to figure out quickly, you know, <laughs> what they need, how much, you know, what their what the issues are. You have to work on with them. With I, I love that challenge. Let's get into the the meat and potatoes of this thing. Let's start yeah. let, let let's start with Chocolate Cake City. What was that? Um, and and what were some of the the highlights of that? Well, Charlie Cake City was uh, one of the many um, comedy troops that Emerson uh, had going on when I was there, and I uh, found out about them. There was a showcase at the beginning of the first year, just of all the comedy troops trying to recruit new people, and I thought I was going to go audition as an actor, and at the last minute, I crapped out, and I just brought a video, a funny video that I had made with me. So I got into the 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 group as a video like their video guy mm-hmm. uh, to shoot the sketch videos and stuff like that so I did that with them for you know two and a half years and then by the end of Emerson I had kind of been swallowed by my BFA project but uh, you know I did a lot of videos with them and of course there were other people in the, in the troupe doing videos as well you know and the group had success that was that had nothing to do with me um, but I did it was a good way to just like constantly be either planning or shooting something yeah and on on it yeah it's just it's just practice i really think that's you know that is the key thing is like just got to keep making stuff it keeps a call it keeps a call on the fire it's it 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 always uh fuels you and and you're amazing at that by the way like you when i think of people that are just like constantly creating something you're a person that i think of because you're you're just you it seems like you never stop making something and i think that's really great and it's really hard to keep that up the more kind of, you know, because when it's just you and your friends and it doesn't cost any money, that's great. But then when it starts costing money and you start having bigger ambitions and, you know, you want to do more uh, large-scale projects, it can be very hard to keep that kind of urgency up, Yeah, you know? It's it's really and, true. I, I, I say that, and thanks for saying that. I really appreciate, I really appreciate that. I want to be perceived that way, so that's, that's good. Um, but it also, I think it has everything to do with... Um, loving it. I mean, I just, I, my my most natural state is to be making something. Um, I completely, yeah, I completely agree. And that's something that's really important to have because there are a lot of people that get into, especially with the, um, you know, the abundance of film school options. Now there are lots of people that see the film industry as a very attractive place for their ego to live, you know? And, you know, they're very interested in presenting a persona of themselves as a filmmaker and like being known as a filmmaker, but they don't have any particular joy for the actual thing, uh, the actual making of something with a crew and actors. And um, you really have to have that, I think, because, you know, it's 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 not like people do it all the time. <laughs> if it was if it was easy, everyone would do it. And it takes and most of the time that I spend now you know, uh, is not directing. And I wish that wasn't the case, but most of the time I spend is, you know, hustling and writing and trying to get, uh, get my foot in the door of various places. You yeah. Know? Which, which and, is strange thinking about your, your, uh, your beginnings as kind of more of a fine art guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like it's, it's interesting the old, the, you know, when you, when you just start out, you make stuff all the time mm-hmm. and you have a great deal of, uh, spontaneity about it and the, the more you the more you do it the more space there is between the projects it seems <laughs> yeah it sucks um yeah. so so uh yeah and those guys the, the chocolate cake city guys i remember they had a, an awful lot of uh of 
uh, early YouTube success with um, they they did right. a, a cool thing. Yeah, uh, well, Jonathan Aid and Patrick Danicola, who were two other members of the group, uh, they did one of the very very original uh, f- um, trailer mashup videos, which was "Broke Back to the Future." It was called and. Uh, they had taken their inspiration from what I think is the first one of the genre that I know of, which was the recut of The Shining into a sort of romantic comedy. Yes, I love that. Which is a great one. And that had come out like literally a couple weeks before. And they uh, had this idea of doing um, you know, a mashup of uh, Back to the Future into the plot line of Brokeback Mountain with uh, you know, Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd as a sort of romantic uh, lovers through time, right. which was genius, and they cut it together, and you know, it got like two million views in like three days or whatever. And you know, anyway, yeah, that was so that was that was the thing that kind of made Charlie Cake. But I had nothing to do with that. Right, right. I didn't even know it was happening until it was already over. Oh, so. really? Oh, I thought I thought you at least were. Oh, I had I had no role in it whatsoever. And they, they, I I I think, uh, and I can't really speak for them because I really don't know anything about how they did it. But uh, I just I know that they it was very, again like the best things seem to be the spontaneous ones. They just came up with the idea. They got the movie. They started doing it. It was done in a couple days. You know, I think they just it was like they knew it was a great idea. They just did it, and it and it blew up. Instantly, you yeah. know, you're, you're absolutely right. My my uh, my feature is always like you have to grind away before people will kind of show an interest. But the shit that I pop off on a weekend for, you know, like completely spontaneously, it's always it's the stuff I'm best known for. Really, it's so weird. And, uh, you know, that I think is a lot easier to do with comedy because comedy is so shareable, you know, mm-hmm. Like if if something makes you laugh, you immediately send it to a friend, you know. Yep. But if someone makes if 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 you watch something you're like wow, that's a really compelling human relationship, <laughs> you know, you don't really go. I'm gonna send this to my buddy. You yeah. know, you post that on Facebook, a compelling human relationship. Yeah, boy, look, this is some compelling uh, human emotion in this uh, in this little you know hour and a half long movie. <laughs> and that, that, that's often why like some of the best sort of like dramedies they 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 can kind of um, almost disguise compelling human relationships and good drama, uh, through comedy. Um, it, it almost sneaks up behind you. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm not implying at all that comedy is in any way easier than drama. No, I no, mean, totally. I just, I think, uh, the story is the story. I mean, like it can be a dramatic story or a comedic story, but a bad story is a bad story. It doesn't matter what genre it is, you know? Yeah. So, um, uh, shortly after we shared a dress and got maggots thrown on us, um, oh yeah. You were like, hey, you were like, hey, I'm also when I don't do this, I'm a filmmaker, and um, <laughs> and you sent uh, you sent around uh, a, a short film script that you were going to do for I think at the time you said it was going to be a practicum, uh, a movie called No Wind No Waves, um, and you wanted notes on it yeah. from everybody. I remember reading the original script, and uh-huh. um, and then you you uh, went off and actually shot it, and that led to a series of events. Uh, yeah. Um... So what happened was I had the so Emerson has a BFA program, which is basically a the last year if you are accepted into the program, and I think they let in like sixteen students every year or something. Uh, you have the entire resources of the school, and you have you know uh, you get to focus uniquely on your project and kind of not have to do all the other bullshit, um, which I did get accepted into, and I I had applied to the project that didn't work out basically I. I applied and got accepted and then changed the project. Yeah. And I had no idea I was going to change it too. And then my, my professor, um, Jim Masak, who 
I had written the script in his class, said, well, why don't you just do the script you wrote in my class? I had never once considered directing it. because, And this was a big turning point for me because it was the moment when I realized that I had sort of, I had limited myself without even knowing it. I had written this script about a Chinese man coming to the United States for the first time uh, to visit his son. And when he arrives, he discovers that his son has disappeared and he has no you know, language or money or anything, in order, any skills to find his son. So he's kind of lost in this big American city trying to find his missing son. And, um, you know, it involved airplanes and an airport and police and Capitol building and stuff. And I just, as I was writing it, I never once considered that I would direct it myself. Because so, it was impractical, uh, budget-wise. and I just assumed that it was, you know, I assumed that I needed to do something more modest. I ne- It's not that I had thought about doing it and then changed my mind. I just had never, it had never crossed my mind. Yeah. Um, but the nice thing about it was that as soon as my professor had suggested that I do it, then that kind of unlocked this part of my brain which said, like, you know, things are possible, you know. <laughs> like, it's kind of, and then, you know, the, the chain of events was that we ended up getting all of those things. We got an airplane, we got the airport, you know, we got the Capitol building in Providence, we shot on location in East Boston, Chinatown. You know, it was it ended up being quite an ambitious production, and uh, most of that stuff we got for free because we asked. You know, mm-hmm. and the lesson being, you know, it's amazing what people will support if you can get them excited about it. Yeah, you know, I, I've 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 experienced the same thing. Where um, I think I, the the advice I've given people before is. Um, when if, if if you've got a, pro- a project in mind and you know you want to shoot it, um, go into the script writing phase without limiting yourself. Just ju- just write it the way you want to write it, and then you can. I mean, really don't think about budget at that stage, and then work backwards and and aim for those hard to reach locations and those kinds of resources you don't think you're going to have. And at least just let people say no. Let it actually be rejected before you decide to move on without it. Because you, like you say, you'd be surprised. Well, that was the moment when I learned that. It was, it was you know, what my brain, even before it had reached my consciousness, had rejected the idea. Yeah, you know? right, of course. My subconscious had said no. Mm-hmm. And so basically I never gave myself the opportunity to do it. And then as soon as I had that revelation, uh, then we started actually, you know. And I think the other part, the other side of that is once you decide to do something, really commit to it because it is so easy to second guess yourself Mm -hmm. and, you know, and kind of anticipate all these hypothetical situations, you know, you kind of have to walk this line of like, well, you know, I don't want to spend a lot of time on something that's not going to work out. But at the same time, uh, you know, it's not going to work out unless you put yourself a hundred percent into it. You know, unfortunately, um, you know, my really good friend, JD Marlowe, who was in my class as well, and who was a director, but who was basically the person that I trusted the most, you know, mm-hmm. um, he came on and was the producer for it and he did an incredible job producing it. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it didn't feel like we were making a student film. And I think that's kind of the, the way you have to think about your projects. You can't think of them as student films or, you know, small budget films or anything like that. You're making the movies that you want to make. Yeah. Like, and if you're going to do that, you've got to throw yourself into it. Yeah. 
you have to straddle this mental line sometimes of you know there you as you're making your films people are going to come up to you and say well even if it doesn't all work out at least you got an amazing learning experience or even while they're watching your first rough cut they'll be like well i mean this was your first time you're going to hear a lot of that kind of stuff um, and those people may well be completely right. And, and, and five to 10 years later, you'll go, damn, I'm, uh, you know, it, it sucked, but I'm glad I did it so I could, you know, knock the cobwebs loose or whatever. But when you're first making it, it's very, you're not going to, nobody makes a movie for a learning experience. It's too goddamn hard. Um, yeah. you, you have to believe in what you're doing. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, 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 and, and, and if you believe in what you're doing, then there is no reason not to push for everything you want. Yeah. I it, mean, like. There's no reason to compromise with yourself. You can compromise with other people, but I don't know why you would compromise with yourself. <laughs> yeah, you're so spot on. Um, linking this back to our conversation about actors, uh, did you have a language barrier with your main actor, or did he speak English? Well, or? actually, it was the first of two films that I made that were in another language, and I actually love. I think partially because I love, you know, I love travel. I love other cultures. I love finding things out. I'm very curious about other cultures and other ways of living. So I didn't like, I, and I think I'm drawn to stories about people that I wouldn't have thought about otherwise necessarily, you know? Um, and I don't know what the experience of a, you know, sort of, uh, Chinese rural Chinese, uh, man is coming to the United States for the first time at all. So I was very curious about that. So I, one thing that I that that kind of leads me to is working with a lot of non-professional actors because mm-hmm. I I think the it's you know if I can find someone who's going to be the authentic thing you know not uh, someone imitating that but actually that person uh, then that and if you can find someone who has the interest in acting you can often get a much more interesting performance than somebody who's sort of a mediocre you know. A whatever actor who's just got some kind of training. Yeah, it's like there's this middle ground. Like I would rather have an excellent actor, an excellent trained, experienced actor, or a non-professional. But I really am not interested in the actors in the middle, which are sort of like they've gone to some acting classes and they're not really that. It's kind of like the equivalent of what I was saying about directors, like actors that want to be known as actors but don't actually have a lot of enthusiasm for it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. Of which there are a lot, especially when you're a student actor because a student director because those are the actors that audition for your films, you know. Yeah, often you need. I've I've had the same experience with, you know, I did a whole feature recently, uh, sexually frank, that that was that you know the main characters were non actors and in a way yeah. it's almost like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I really don't want to demean um, um, acting, uh, having an acting education, but but in a way not having any of that external stuff in the way. Uh, they had no choice but to be as honest as possible. If they were going to have any competent performance at all, they were just going to have to be comfortable and honest and believe that it was real. Well, it's interesting how, like, uh, you know, like the, the 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 man we ended up casting as the lead in this film, um, who you know was basically a you know late forties guy from who had been born in China and grew up in Vietnam, and he had smallpox as a kid, and he didn't really never never went to college or anything like that. He ran a laundromat in uh, Worcester. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, not never considered acting before doing my film really only came because I was offering 500 bucks to the person that would do it. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, he understood in a way that was so clear and simple, uh, the sort of most important thing about acting, which is that you're really doing it. You're not showing what something would look like, you know, which is a problem that a lot of, uh, 
supposedly trained actors have, which is they're showing you what doing that thing might look like, yeah. but they're not actually doing it. You yeah. know? <laughs> and um, that was a very easy thing to convey to him because he, wasn't, he didn't have all this sort of you know, mishmash training in the way. Yeah, he's like, now, I wouldn't again, even know what to, he's like, I wouldn't even know how to think that way. Yeah, like pretending to do something is not um, really something that, uh, I mean, we all have imagination and we, we all can sort of imagine ourselves in different situations and that's great, but we don't really imitate behavior very often, mm-hmm. you know? And so it was just a very simple thing. I, the, what I did in the um, audition with him, because it, it was in Chinese and it didn't really matter to me whether they stuck to the script, honestly. I just wanted to see the real um, you know, interactions between these characters. What I did in the audition was I put a whole bunch of stuff on the table and I said, you know, these are all potential gifts for your son. And he had a son, so it was very easy to you know, discuss this with him. Yeah. Uh, I said, these are all potential gifts for your son pick out one or two that you might want to give him, you know? And it was some kitchenware and some food and little trinkets and things. And so he kind of did this version of it that, you know, he, it was an acting version. It was him stroking his chin and like scratching his head and looking at the stuff. And I was like, wait a second, wait a second. What would your son actually like? You know, what would your son really like of these things? And immediately he was looking at it you know, for his own real son. And it became a completely different thing. It was actually him looking at objects and trying to pick out something his son would like, you know, and all the artifice went away. And then at the end, I was just like, you know, that's what we're, that's what the whole thing is going to be like. That's what we're going to do every day. It's just, these are physical activities, you know, that we're going to, you're going to be concentrating on and that's it. You know, there's no acting involved. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what I did with all the actors. And, you know, uh, interestingly, um, I, I kind of I, I like to mix in, um, you know, more experienced actors as well. Um, but I like the fact that you can't always tell which ones are which. I think that's really nice. And I also, just as a side note, I don't like actors that look like actors. You know, mm-hmm. actors with a capital A. With the, 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 I don't like gorgeous people doing amazing things. I like real faces that have authenticity and experience. So, so take us from, uh, the, the completion, the post-production of no and no waves, uh, through its festival run, um, and, and how that eventually will transition, um, into the next film. So no, when no waves, I finished, uh, uh, I guess it was done in May of 2008, just as I graduated. And, um, you know, it went to, uh, you know, I would say maybe 15 festivals over the next year. Uh, it only won one prize, I think. Um, and that was, you know, I, it was great. I had never had a film that had gone to festivals before, so that was a whole experience, and I'm, you know, I'm not complaining about it. It, premiered, most, it premiered in Newport, if I'm not mistaken. It premiered in, uh, in, uh, at the Rhode Island Film Festival. Rhode it, Island. Did play, it did play at Newport, but it, it premiered at the Rhode Island Film Festival, and it won the um, like undergraduate film award there Mm -hmm. Uh, and then it played at a whole bunch of other festivals um and you know but i would say the most important thing that it did was it became my submission material for the american film institute Mm -hmm. uh and that was you know the fact that that was my that that's what i could show and i do believe that's you know why i was accepted ultimately because i had a strong piece of work that's was worth the whole experience by itself um the American Film Institute, I, I basically, uh, in the 
I had I applied with a rough cut of the film for the directing program and then was accepted and then so I, I basically went straight from Emerson to AFI in the fall of 2008. Why an MFA? Why did you decide on that? Well, it was an, it was again it was kind of like Emerson. I I didn't want an MFA f- for the degree. Yeah. Um, I wanted to uh, go to the American Film Institute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that specific program, which is. Uh, a really, really unique program, I think. And, you know, I kind of knew about the AFI forever. Uh, for some, I just felt like, I, you know, as soon as you start getting interested in film, you start becoming aware of AFI. Yep. And um, so, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't want to go to graduate school. I had kind of a plan of, like, what I would do if I didn't go to graduate school. But I definitely wanted to give myself the chance of going to AFI. And... Um, you know, the other, I, it was the only place I applied, and uh, fortunately, I got in because I think going to AFI was the best thing, the best decision I've made. But I don't think that uh, you know, um, graduate school is a must. The anecdote that I think is most revealing is I was I was um, interning at Universal uh, in my last semester at Emerson, and uh, the executive there that I was interning for, you know, I'd applied. I didn't know if I got in, but I, I thought I'd ask him, you know, from the executive, from a studio executive point of view, what does graduate school mean when you're looking at directors? So I asked him, like, does it play into who you hire as a director? And he said, we really don't look at graduate school at all. It really makes no difference to us where you went to graduate school, where you went to undergraduate, what, what kind of degree you have. It doesn't matter where you went to graduate school unless it's AFI. Oh, wow. That's what he said. Uh, and he, you know, and I, that, that was all I really needed to know. And yeah. then a couple weeks later I got into AFI. Um, and I think the reason he said that is because AFI is all production all the time. So it's like what you, it was like what we were talking about earlier. It's just, you're making a lot of work while you're there and the classes are there to support the work you're doing, not vice versa. Were there plenty of opportunities for, for feedback and, um, and screening to other students? Absolutely. It's constant. I mean, the, the, the model of the school is, you know, you make a film in order to then use it to uh, use it in the classes. So, you know, in, mo- in most programs, including Emerson and other graduate programs, the classes are a sort of theoretical almost. It's like when you someday get to make a film, yeah. what, you, know, you may be confronted with these decisions and what will you do, you know? Whereas AFI, it's like literally the first week uh, of school, you begin making your first film. So, and then the classes don't kick in until you finish. <laughs> so basically, the, f- the material you make is then taken through all the classes and uh, discussed and screened. And it's screened in front of the whole school and in front of the whole faculty. And it's screened in the production design class and the editing class. And each element of the film is totally deconstructed by the other students and by the faculty. And it's brutal. And then you take all that knowledge and you go into your next film, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. So it's really, you see, you see your own growth in a way that is not possible if you're just making one film every four years, you know? Because yeah. I literally, I directed one film at Emerson, you know? Um, being no wind, no waves? Yeah. Oh wow. No one knew. No one knew I was a. I wanted to be a director. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because kinda... I had. Yeah, I had done cinematography. I had done sound. I had acted and stuff. And then suddenly, I had directed this film in my last year. You know, it's, I think it kind of took people by surprise. And, um, you know, I think that's the way most film programs are. It's like 
you're fighting with other students to get a, get the chance to direct something, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas at AFI, you know, going in, you're going to direct like four films, and you're going to also direct a few exercises as well. You know? Yeah, you live and breathe directing. Yeah. Um, how does this transition into Thief? So Thief uh, was my thesis film at AFI. Um, uh, so the first year, you make three three cycle films, which are you know, basically feeding into the classes, as I said. And then the second, you know, at the end of the first year, you pitch an idea for your thesis film. It gets greenlit or redlit by the school. And then the second year, you um, you make that film and you sort of take the whole year to make that one project. And it's much bigger scale and, you know, much more elaborate. Or it can be, I guess. It doesn't have to be. But, um, you know, bigger is not necessarily better. <laughs> Uh, it's more, uh, you know, what the story is. And I think that's the other, the focus of AFI is on narrative. So, you know, it's all about the story. And, uh, Thief was an idea that I had had as a junior in high school, actually, (laughs) um, to make a film that would, uh, as one of the one in examining the character of Saddam Hussein in the period from when he fell from power to when he was captured, Mm-hmm. And to examine what was going on with that human being <laughs> in that period of time, and that was that, that was I thought an interesting topic for a movie. Of course, in New England, there's nowhere to make that movie, so that was kind of filed away, and you know, and I kind of every once in a while I would jot down a note or two about it as something came up over the years, and sort of kicked around for seven years or so, and then of course in California you have the re- the sort of locations to make a film set in Iraq. And uh, so I figured that was the time to do it. And um, fortunately, it got, got greenlit, and uh, it was a long, long development process um, to figure out what the actual story within that is. Um, but uh, ultimately, it ended up being the movie that... It ended up being the best possible movie I could have made for myself because it really was a personal project, and it really gave me a chance to kind of show my voice. So... So just to get into the nuts and bolts of making that movie a little bit. So AFI spots you a few bucks by greenlighting it. Um, yeah. Are you able to go out for outside money uh, or is it kind of all insular? AFI gives you $12,000 to start with. But in L.A., that really doesn't get you very far. Right. Um, and uh, then you are allowed to raise up to $65,000 to uh, do the film. And you can raise it basically however you want. Um so we set about trying to raise, we, you know, it's, it's a movie set in Iraq. It's set in two time periods, 1959 and 2003. You know, six actors, period vehicles, shot all on location. We had to build a house, you know, build an Iraqi hut. Um, so it was very, we tried to raise $65,000. We didn't really come close, to be honest. I think we shot the movie for 38000 and I think we ended up spending something like 45000 all told. Uh, so we really tried to put as much of the money on screen as possible. We shot and finished uh, in 35, um, which was really nice. Um, the crew was the key. Uh, the key uh, positions are AFI fellows of the different AFI disciplines, um, but everybody else was, uh, you know, sort of working professionals in LA. And uh, you know, it was a really it was a full scale production. Um, shot for seven days. We had about 45 people on set at any given time. You know, we shot. We ended up shooting the entire thing on location, which I love. Mm. Uh, we built a freestanding structure, two-room cottage that we could shoot in. Um, 
it was a really, really challenging and really wonderful experience. <laughs> I, I, I want you to, because uh, this is the this was your second film that you shot on thirty five mil, right? Right, right. And I, I that's a, I mean that's a really um, it's a really interesting decision for a number of reasons. One being that um, it it's fallen out of favor not just for student films but at this point blockbusters. Uh, and two, um, it's really just so cost prohibitive, even compared with 16 millimeter. And yet you still go, fuck it, 35. And that, so, <laughs> so, so, so I've, I've got to hear why. Well, um, for, for, uh, no wind, no waves. I, you know, uh, we shot on 35, um, and I can't even really remember the rationale, to be honest. <laughs> I think there was a certain element of like no AFI BFA film had shot on 35 before, so and everyone thought it was impossible. So we were just gonna stick it to the man and show them that you could do it. You oh, know? that's awesome, actually. Um, <laughs> I can get behind and, that. And and really, the 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 a lot of the professors were against it, and and uh, everyone thought it was gonna be too expensive and blah blah blah. And we ended up getting like all our film for free, and you know the camera basically didn't cost us anything. You know. Um, and that's really the thing about making a student film on film is that, uh, you know, the film, maybe now it's too late, but at the time, you know, companies like Kodak and Fujifilm and Panavision and things like that, they were really uh, on a knife's edge. Like mm -hmm. they, they saw young people who wanted to sh use their products and they were all about it, you know, because they were hoping at that time there was hope yeah. <laughs> that they could preserve their business. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so a young person coming along saying, we're really committed to shooting 35, will you help us, was a very appealing thing. Um, we kind of caught the tail end of that with Thief. Uh, Thief, we had a much more reasonable and legitimate uh, decision-making about shooting 35. Um, to me, film has a, a certain, it has an organic quality. I mean, every frame of film is different. Things happen with film that uh, are unpredictable, um, that are the product of light passing through a three-dimensional surface. You know, there's the interaction of the celluloid with the lenses and everything like that. There's a lot of... It feels really human to me. It feels really organic and human, and I love the grain structure, and I love, like, sort of all the little aesthetic things that separate film from video. And when I see a... A, a film that's well shot, projected on 35 millimeter, it feels like a magical place. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I see a movie, it's not, that's not to say that there aren't films that should be shot digital because digital has its own set of um, sort of characteristics and different cameras now have different characteristics, whatever. And it's becoming more and more possible to make video look great. So, you know, times are changing. But um, we're going to get, know, we're getting to that place now where, formats are choices they're not i mean they've they have always been but i think that with every iteration of the red or every iteration of the alexa it's kind of this chase for the best looking and it's getting to that place where it's like um it's not a matter of good and bad it's just different and and, See, and I, yeah it, it's just for your film i hate when things are perfect you know mm-hmm I, I and they're not ever perfect, but I don't believe in perfection as an idea. But uh, you know, you strive to make something perfect, perhaps. But I, I hate things that look sort of shiny and glossy and perfect and airbrushed. You know, 
I really like rebel against the idea of perfection. And I like when things look a little bit um, dirty or old or imperfect or asymmetrical, you know. Rougher uh, edges. Yeah, I like that a lot. Mm. And film has a, has a um, as I said, there are a lot of things that can happen with film that can make it uh, feel, it just feels more real to me. Seeing ESPN does not feel real, you know whatever, like 60 frames per second, 3D, that does not feel real to me. Mm -hmm. I actually, you know, and it may be the sort of acquired set of, um, you know, uh, sort of neurological pathways that were carved by seeing films, you know, (laughs) that young people won't have, you know. Yeah, it could be. Um, And that's fine, whatever. I I just, I think about film in a certain way. Now, whatever. If you're going to shoot the Red or Alexa or whatever, I just would be interested to see something that, is a little hazy or a little dirty or find ways to make the image not so perfect. You know, the one that kills me is, uh, it seems like after a while, student films or independent films all start to look like camera demos on Vimeo is the way I describe it. Um, and, and, and it, it becomes this thing of, uh, you know, 35 millimeter sensors allowed you to have, uh, this really, uh, shallow depth of field and now that we can do that with digital cameras you're seeing just this extremely like the, it, it's not really an artistic choice and you see it all the time this really 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 sharp depth of field and uh, well, yeah the- it, it makes me want to instantly gravitate towards wider lenses and just go completely against that as much as I can and, and come up with reasons to use wider lenses and I don't know I'm, I'm with you I, I kind of rebel against that a little bit well I think that the difference between the the you know, the difference between the focal, um, the depth of field in a, uh, 5D and a 35 millimeter is not, in 35 millimeter is not, um, well, in 35 millimeter, the focus rolls off very slowly. Yes. You know, and, it, and not steep, not, and not just because of the lenses and things like that, but also because of the fact that the film grain is actually a three dimensional object. You know, so within the piece of within the microscopic piece of film, you know, the depth of that film, there is focus there, you know. Um, and then in a, in a digital situation, it's getting translated by a computer into an image, you know, and the focus goes from being in focus to suddenly being out of focus. And right. it stays at that same level of being out of focus forever. So it's like this. You, you see these shots now where it's like a little, you know, sort of inch long depth field of focus that's rolling along something you know mm-hmm. it's really obnoxious and distracting and it doesn't look real that's not how we see things either you yeah. know yeah it, it, there's there's it's pure it's drawing attention to itself photographically and i think uh you know there are lots of ways to get around that and using you know wider lenses and things like that is great but i you know i i i'm very interested to see you know whatever my first feature ends up being and whatever format it ends up um, being shot on, if there's, you know, I really hope that it's not one of these sort of digital looking movies. I don't know if you saw 42. Uh, no, I didn't. The baseball but, but movie, that, right? Yeah, but that has a very kind of um, digital look to me, like where everything kind of has an art. It feels like, I don't know if this is true, but it feels like everything kind of has an artificial glow added onto it afterwards. Mm-hmm. The sort of, there's nothing... Um, it's just everything is shiny and, and soft and, you know, it just I, – I can't watch it. <laughs> a lot of – I mean Fincher's, Fincher and Soderbergh stuff kind of looks like that too. I, I actually like that stuff a lot, but, I, but it does look that way. I think the difference with Fincher and Soderbergh who really have mastered using uh, digital um, formats 
for cinema is that their their material fits the characteristics of that kind of look. Fincher's movies tend to be uh, tend to have this very kind of harsh, um, almost clinical. Uh, it's like people are under a microscope, and their worst uh, their worst characteristics are being shine. You know, the lights being shine on the scrutinized and. Yeah, and like the Social Network was a movie that made perfect sense to me to be shot on digital. You know, mm-hmm. that that was a good pairing of. Anyway, I just the thing that ultimately the thing that bothers me is that it's no longer a choice. You know. Yeah. If I want to shoot on thirty-five millimeter, I wish I could be able to. Right. You know? Yeah. Of course. Well, hopefully that'll be the case in in some uh, some respect. It's just going to get really expensive, uh, more so well, than yeah. it ever has been. Uh, okay. So. Um, so obviously, so Thief does does a, a a pretty massive thing for you, which is it it, it uh, you win the Student Academy Award. Well, yeah, the first thing that happened with the movie was um, we got rejected from every major film festival. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. We got rejected from Sundance, Telluride, Toronto, uh, Berlin, Rotterdam, you know, Venice, all these like huge all the film festivals that people dream of going to. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I thought our movie was good, but you know, we're just gonna keep submitting it and hope that it gets in somewhere. Then the first thing that happened with it was we won um, the Best Drama and Best Director Student Emmy Awards, which is strange because, you know, technically the Emmys is a television award, but um, yeah. because of because it's open to student work, a lot of student work is ends up being short films. So we won those two awards, and that was um, came out of nowhere, really. Uh, and, uh, and then festivals started to warm up a little bit, and then a few months later we did win the gold medal student academy award in the narrative category in 2011 and that was um that did feel like a real that was definitely a landmark in my life but also it felt like a landmark for the film because it was effectively you know whether it's true or not it was the academy saying this is the best student film of the year you know Mm -hmm. um now you know that's debatable, of course, because, you know, these, it's still a jury and blah, blah, blah. But it did feel like we had really accomplished something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it distinguishes you from the crowd, from a, from an otherwise saturated market. I mean, I, the, it, you kind of, hopefully, you know, my assumption is, is that you end up in a really cool spot where festivals start approaching you to screen as opposed to trying to chase down festivals. Yeah, that did start to happen, although... Honestly, we didn't get much of a bump out of our industry awards. Frankly, the film did really well within the industry. I mean, you know, um, AFI also had a a very critical showcase where they have a jury-selected group of five films that they screen at the DGA, and it's sort of a, you know, industry event, promotional event for the school, but also a chance for, like, agents and managers and studio people to come and watch what AFI considers to be the top five. Um, and our movie got into that, and that's what ultimately led to me getting my agent and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but basically, like that screening, the Student Academy Awards, the Student Emmy Awards, we were sort of doing a lot of industry things that were going really well. And on the festival circuit, our movie was sort of getting rejected from a lot of the big festivals. We ended up playing at about fifty festivals, and we did we did get to hit some big ones, which was really nice. And we won a, a lot of awards on the festival circuit, which was really we're so grateful that the movie did find an audience and like got seen by a lot of people and got liked by a lot of people. Cause what more could you want for your movie? Yeah, obviously. Can people see that movie? Uh, I, I know they can see no wind, no waves online. I think they can anyway. They can, although the version that's online was put there without my permission and is not actually the final cut of the film. Oh boy. <laughs> so, so I have to, um, 
I have to. I'm actually going to probably get that retransferred from 35 sometime soon and put it up myself, and you know, just so people can actually see it the way it should be seen. Um, but uh, Thief, uh, I'm pleased to report, uh, did end up finding a distributor, and it is available to watch at a really cool, um, very new and very cool uh, site, which is called Elevision. It's like television without the T at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Elevision.com, um, which is it's basically it's striving to be uh, the Netflix of short films. Basically, mm. um, it's going to be a place where it's very highly curated, and um, you know I think it's really it's it's uh, one of the founders from Vimeo and uh, and uh, you know some people from um, I believe Wolfen, which is sort of a uh, anthology of short stories, films, whatever. They came together and started this thing and. Uh, Right now, there's only 10 films on there. Thief is available there to watch, to download and watch and keep forever. You pay $1.99 and it's yours. And um, I think they're going to, it's going to actually, I'm really psyched about this, this site because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the replacement. It's going to be like the DVD release of shorts. Mm-hmm. So once you buy the film, it unlocks all kinds of special features and other things. Oh, that's great. And they're going to be it's, – it's working very closely with filmmakers too. So I feel like this is something that is filling a void that didn't really exist for shorts. Yeah, it know? sounds like it. It doesn't have DRM or any of that nonsense? Well, basically what, what happens is you can – once you buy it, you download it and you can play it on all your devices and you, know, you can carry it on your iPad and whatever. Mm-hmm. It's very, very it's, – it's kind of like you – know, it has a lot of the sensibility of Vimeo to it because it's very user-friendly and very, and very high quality and it's all about like – if you will, the projection of the film, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then on top of that, it's, you know, they, they're working directly with the filmmakers. So, you know, if I have an idea of something I want to put up on the special features area, I can just send it to them and they'll put it up, you know? Do you produce your own special features? Do you do, you do stuff like that? I'm a total whore for that stuff. I, I mean, I love like, you know, I'm a, just a junkie of DVD packaging. <laughs> Same here, man. It, <laughs> totally. Like everything, like Fincher's DVDs, I think are the best out there mm-hmm. um you know just the depth of uh i i you know i will buy a dvd uh i mean a blu-ray you know yeah <laughs> uh, with dvds is such a it's so 2009 <laughs> um anyway you know i'll buy a blu-ray if it has a huge making of documentary on it yep. but uh probably not otherwise you know i really only buy blu-rays when they have tons of special features and I love stuff like that. Like we, we, you know, the the mistake that I made with Thief was that I didn't have, you know, like an on-set videographer. I think that's so important um, because people love to get, you know, I think the 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 social media has made it so that people want to get really in depth with the things they like, and um, so like having behind-the-scenes videos and having uh, lots of good photography and little. We even put Easter eggs on our DVDs. <laughs> Um, there's a little hidden special feature on the DVD somewhere. Um, I love that stuff. And I, I, I want to make movies that inspire people to want to know more about movie making. Next time, all you got to do is call Frankie Frayne. He'll make you all your special features for free. You are so on. <laughs> I'll totally do it. Um, so uh, then that leads to, so you get your agent. Um, IMDB tells me you land the house episode. But uh, is that is you know is there other cool stuff kind of uh, going around and and tell us a little bit about the house experience? Well, the house episode is the cool thing. Uh, that is television. I've learned is 
much harder to get into than features. <laughs> um, television is a closed system, and uh, and it's a, it's a very clubby, very exclusive um, place. And especially now that it's gotten to be such a quality place for a director to work. Um, so television was really not on the table at all. It was not something that I, you know, nobody really thought that it was... And I think rightly, it's very hard for people to break into television. The only thing, the, the way that it happened for me was that um, Greg Yatanis, who was at the time the executive producer on House, uh, presented me the Best Director Award at the Student Emmys. And he had seen the movie and he really loved it. And he kind of invited me to shadow him. And then, you know, based on our relationship developing, he opened, he extended the invitation. And I ended up shadowing him for about, four months and um you know every time he was doing something i would i would be there and he really brought me into the 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 shoot you know the season and um and then he made this incredible decision which you know of all the people that i could have shadowed on the show he was really the only one that could have made this decision he dropped out of an episode that he was going to direct and he was in a position to then give it to me Mm. so it really was a kind of you know a once in a lifetime sort of opportunity. And of course, you know, you're not going to be like, nah, I don't think I, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I was psyched because I mean, you know, it's an amazing show, amazing group of actors, amazing crew. It really was kind of a very, very special place. Uh, now the show's over, unfortunately, but, um, anyway, uh, so that's how that came about. And then the, the house experience of actually directing it was incredible. And there was a, it was actually I loved it so much. <laughs> I loved working on that show. Um, what can I say? It was a it was really challenging, uh, just in terms of I had never led a group of people that accomplished. I had never worked on yeah, a production right. of that scale. You know, 150 people. You know, huge celebrity actors. You know, millions of dollars. I mean, the the budget at the episode was roughly five million dollars, which yeah. of course I'd never come close to working with that. Shit a brick. That yeah. Kind of, yeah, I mean, and of course, I never had to even, you know, I had nothing to do with the budget. I never had to worry about it at all. It was, I'd never, no one ever showed it to me. No one ever asked me about it, you know. <laughs> um, so basically, you know, it was a level of production that I had not experienced before, and it was incredibly liberating. I mean, you know, there also, of course, is a structure in television in terms of how you shoot and the sort of the nature of the show and how you work on that show. Um, which so it's not quite the same as developing a movie from scratch, but sure. um, I mean it's very different. <laughs> Did you go but, in knowing the show as a fan? Not really. I mean, I I I went in loving Hugh Laurie from his British television work. Yeah. Um, you know, I love Jeeves, Jeeves and Wooster, and um, you know, Blackadder, and a bit of Fry and Laurie, and all the stuff that he had done. I was a huge fan and had been for a long time. But, uh, you know, actually directing him is a whole different story. I mean, it's, you know, someone with his experience and his talent and his focus, um, it made everybody on set step up their game. You know, everybody, he was the, he was the standard. And, um, you know, everybody in the cast actually was, you know, was great to work with in their own way. Um, and uh, I've tried to stay in touch with some of the actors and, and, um, you know, I hope to be able to work with them again and also the people in the production. I mean, the show ended and they all moved on to different, uh, different gigs, but, um, 
I can't wait to poach some of these people for my first feature. And hopefully, you know, we'll end up working on a television show again together. Yeah, it sounds like there's opportunities there for sure. It's yeah, a- I mean, David Shore has already, you know, sold two more pilots. So we shall see what he um, what he comes up with. Yeah, yeah. He just has to remember Julian. I um, hope he does. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's so cool to hear hear you talk about, you know, kind of stumbling into filmmaking, uh, loving Monty Python and directing the guy from Black Adder. I mean, it's yeah. a, such a goddamn cool thing. Well, it's interesting that so much of like what got me into film was comedy related. And then uh, I started, I, I'm gravitating now and ever since really much more towards character driven drama, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think House struck a really interesting um, medium between comedy and drama and, uh, there was all the, the great thing about House was that it's an incredibly um, complicated character. It's almost a cable character within this network procedural show. Yeah, and and uh, and then at the center of every episode is a really strong ethical dilemma of some kind. Because mm-hmm. David Shore is very, in, in my understanding, and uh, working with him is he's very interested in the intersection of what the, of the character drama and also the sort of moral and ethical. Um, questions. It's not just about like what what hijinks are going to happen this week. It's uh, it's always centered around some interesting issue that fascinates him. And um, my episode was a really cool episode in that regard, and I could really like grab onto it as a piece of drama. So everything. So you've been kind of planting these little bombs uh, that that the next thing is a feature. And when I talked to you about trying to find some time to do the pod. Um, you were like, well, I've been doing, a lot, you know, I write in the, every morning. I write every single morning. Is that what you're gearing up towards, or are you just writing all kinds of stuff? Um, no, I'm. I've been working for the last. I've been working on the actual writing for about six months, and I've known I was going to do this project for about a year now. Um, it's. Uh, I found this book, um, which I, I. I probably shouldn't, you know, get too specific about it, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a book that I'm adapting, and I I got interested in it last year, and um, you know, I ended up option. I you know, I I I, I, I uh, sort of cultivated the writer uh, of the book for a long time, and at the end of the year last year, I optioned the book finally, and uh, now I've been working on it. I'm I'm, I'm almost done with the third draft of it, um, and uh, that's what I've been working on every morning. Although I, I shouldn't, I should say just out of complete honesty that I don't normally write every morning. <laughs> it's only, uh, you know, when I actually have something to write and I've done everything else I can possibly do to avoid writing that then I start writing every morning. <laughs> Once you've taken a shit, <laughs> once yeah. you... clean the entire house. Yeah. You know? right. yeah. Uh, absolutely. And, and, when, and when everything's tidy, then I can start writing. <laughs> um, but. well, you know, I, 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 um, I really should thank you for doing this. It's and and thank you for being the kind of artist you are, and I really do mean that. Uh, you've never been not when I knew you in college. Were you ever too cool to sit down and have a conversation about this kind of stuff? You're not too cool now. I really appreciate that. The idea of me being too cool is kind of a ridiculous idea, to be honest. I mean, you know, I uh, I think that. It's very important, no matter what level of success you have, to just be grateful for the fact that you have that opportunity at all. And I know what a crazy thing it was for me to fall into directing an episode of House. I don't take that for granted at all. And I don't, um, 
you know, I don't believe that I was, you know, I deserved it. And so I was entitled to it in some way. Uh, but on the other hand, it's really important for everyone to understand that like your work leads to more work, you know, of course, that's how I feel like there was a direct line between the passion that I had for making thief, you know, Mm. after years of, of thinking about that direct line to the work, the hard work that all of us did on that to then me getting the opportunity to shadow. And then from that, getting the opportunity to do the episode. So I really think it is about perseverance. A lot of it is about perseverance and a lot of it is about, you know, the work you do. It all comes down to the material in the end. It's true shit. Um, Julian Higgins, ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, f- follow him, uh, on Facebook to keep up with him. Uh, uh yeah, my, I, I'm on, I'm on Twitter now. Uh, I have my Twitter is film Julian is my Twitter. Cause there's another actually 27 year old bearded film director in LA named Julian Higgins. And he got all the good domain names and everything first. So oh, son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and fun. I actually I've been in touch with him. We're actually Facebook friends. It's really funny. We always get each other's mail and stuff. Oh, but uh, anyway, film Julian on Twitter is is probably the best way. And also, my website is julianh.com, and I'm reachable through that. So, and and cheer him on because this is exactly the kind of artist uh, that we need in the world. Thank you so much, Julian. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Frankie. Thanks for having me on. All right, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thank you.